Blog Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSO 2013, uh, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is with Dewey Norton, a leader in his field and is a well-sought-out speaker for professional organizations such as the Financial Executives International, uh, the Institute of Internal Auditors, and many others. He has led finance and accounting departments into high-performing groups at both domestic and international companies, which have usually involved turnaround situations or even led to a strategic acquisition. He has advised senior staff members of the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission and the Board of Directors of the International Accounting Standards Board. His board services focus sometimes on few entrepreneurs right now who are developing companies with significant international potential. Dewey is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania where he completed a BA in the College of Arts and Sciences and has an MBA at Wharton. Today we'll be discussing uh, key financial leadership principles based on Dewey's new book, The Executive's Guide to Financial Management, Improving Risk, Strategy, and Financial Performance. Good morning, Dewey. Good morning. Well, I'm really excited to have you on our show. And my first question was to dig a little deeper into the inspiration of the book. And what was your inspiration to write this book? Well, I had just been invited to teach international accounting at uh, UCLA Extension. And one of the things that they asked me was uh, what new courses I might want to introduce. And so as I thought about this, I uh, uh, felt pretty strongly that there was a need to teach a course that would help people in um, uh, mid-career who were aspiring to the role of CFO to get a better understanding of what they were getting into, um, a book that would help uh, new CFOs to become successful in their jobs, and of course many of them fail, and I also felt that uh, chief executive officers and directors uh, uh, could benefit from a better understanding of the most difficult issues that CFOs face. So as I uh, thought about this, I looked around the web and I couldn't find any courses uh, on this subject. I also couldn't find any books. So I realized, well, if I'm going to teach the course, I'm going to have to write the book. <laughs> and uh, then I, I realized, well, gosh, I mean, this is pretty uh, uh, big topic, you know, for nothing to be written. And so uh, I was excited. All I could find were a few memoirs by business executives where they talked about their heroic efforts in one or two ventures and um, a, a few um, very narrowly focused um uh, academic articles, and so I decided to write a book that would cover uh, 42 enterprises and would cover all the most important issues that uh, CFOs uh, deal with, and so it was quite a lot of fun. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I had the pleasure of uh, getting into that book, and, and I think that the great thing is your experience, and I wanted you to share with our, our audience uh, members, you know, how many deals have you been involved with over the course of your career? Because I know that was some of the basis of, of your book. Yes. If you if you look at um, acquisitions, divestitures, joint ventures, turnaround situations, startups, um, and bids uh, for uh, over $10 million in business, I would guess that I've, I've been involved in at least 80 uh, deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your book covers and about sometimes, a little over 40. Uh, I, I would be <laughs> acting as the corporate controller of a large international company, and so in the course of a year from uh, um, many different operations, uh, uh, quite a few deals would come my way. Mm-hmm. And, and of those deals that you you personally had to roll up your sleeves, got really involved with, how would you characterize most of them? Successful, good, or just pure failures? Or if there was, did you see any patterns in some of the, the deals you were involved with? Well, it, somebody did a study once of the Fortune 500 of their just of their acquisitions and. Um, found that um, fewer than half of them were financially successful. Uh, I would rate my average for these all these deals uh, somewhat higher. I would say over 60% were successful. Um, but bear in mind, in some cases, I was coming in to turn around a failed acquisition. Um, in other cases, I was... Uh, uh, leading the finance function in preparing extremely large-scale uh, bids for business uh, by strong um, international uh, companies. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say, are, are there any key differences in creating um, acquisition targets, let's say from a private company's perspective versus a public company's perspective? Yes, there are, but they're, they're, they involve shades of gray. You know, we're, we're not talking about a categorical difference that always prevails. Uh, I have found that private companies are um, less likely to pay too much for an acquisition because the entrepreneurs uh, become less emotionally invested uh, in the idea of an acquisition. And they're, they're clearly less concerned about the public perception. Uh, on the other hand, their due diligence is uh, generally um, much less thorough because they just don't have the uh, um, resources to bring to bear on an acquisition that a public uh, company would. So these are some of the key differences, but they're differences of degree. They're not dramatic differences. They're certainly... Uh, very successful public companies and their failed private companies, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, when after a deal is completed, um, you know, in a M&A transaction, how do you how do you measure success of the deal? Well, I, I think there are two ways to look at this. Uh, the, the first is how did you do within a year or two after the acquisition? Um, if the integration of the two firms um, is successful, well, then uh, synergistic benefits are going to be achieved. 
in in a variety of ways. Uh, the financial objectives are going to be uh, accomplished. So, Dewey, I was thinking about those M&A transactions you were mentioning, and more importantly, some of the uh, board oversight roles and responsibilities. Uh, what do you see are the most common strategic failures that the board overlooks in an M&A transaction? Well, they need to closely examine uh, what the executives are doing. Uh, you know, they, they're not able to do this in all areas because they are at the board uh, level, but it's fairly common in acquisitions uh, for companies to pursue um, um, uh, firms that are uh, opportunistic uh, in nature rather than closely tied to the corporate strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, sometimes are very uh, superficial uh, in their due diligence, and I find that companies that uh, are um, do a poor job in this way uh, do it repeatedly. And so uh, this happens over a period of time and, and leads to major mistakes. So this is something that the board should pay close attention to, and, and most board members have experience with acquisitions, so they, you know, they know good due diligence when they see it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when they look at that, yeah, when they look at that good due diligence, that there's obviously some metrics that that were provided or requested. I'm assuming to say, hey, I, I have this experience. I'm on the board. You've provided me the due diligence uh, results, and let's let's measure them. Let's measure these results that we need to see one, two years out. That's right. And another thing that they, the directors uh, have a lot of experience with where companies frequently fail is that um, uh, the uh, planning for the uh, post-acquisition integration of the two companies is not uh, very well thought out. Some of the objectives are rather nebulous. For example, they might say, well, we're going to save X million dollars through purchasing synergies. Well, you know, that's not a measurable objective. That doesn't really tell you anything. Um, directors ought to be asking, well, precisely how are you going to do this? Um, uh, who is going to be responsible for this? What what are they going to save? How are they going to do it? Uh, what are the deadlines by which they're going to achieve this? Are there any staff changes that need to be made, either reducing staff or uh, improving the staff or adding specialized people, um, what changes in the computer systems are going to have to be made to uh, accomplish this, and um, what kind of financial analysis is going to be available at various stages to uh, uh, help to um, um, measure and reassess the, the strategy. So these are all areas where members of the board of directors typically have uh, strong experience, and if they get into it and, and listen to the presentations that the uh, CEO and the CFO and others are making, um, they can make a difference in the success of acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of doing a deeper dive in terms of questioning the executive on the results and the activities that they need to produce to get those results. So, like you said earlier, you know, you're expecting synergies in, I don't know, payroll or vendor management or, you know, payments, but 
Well, what does that look like? Uh, you know, is it uh, staff changes or, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, consolidation of personnel in one location versus, let's say, multi-locations? So it's diving deeper and asking those those critical, hard-hitting questions. Um, yes, I yeah, to... well, of course, directors have to be very careful not to micromanage, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, they are there to deal with the most important issues, and certainly the acquisition of a company, particularly a large one, uh, is a strategic decision, and they have to bore into that. Uh, it, it is appropriate for them to uh, uh, pay attention at least to the uh, – um, overall um, plans uh, and the clarity of thinking behind those plans. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's it's a lot of work after um, an M and A deal to to start giving materials if you're especially in your that C level suite, um, which dovetail into another question I had about time management because. You know, a lot of these executives are doing more with less, or they're wearing multiple hats. So from a time management perspective, you know, how should a CFO, let's say, focus their energy after a merger or an acquisition? Well, the the uh, implementation of the acquisition plan, that is the integration of the companies, the achievement of the uh, cost savings, the uh, uh, increased uh, uh, market share that uh, is expected, um, is going to uh, take uh, an, an immense amount of work. And so the, the CFO uh, will have to be personally involved in, in a lot of this in, in most companies. And so, therefore, it's going to be necessary uh, for the CFO to um, delegate a lot more, to lean on uh, the uh, highest-performing uh mid-level professionals in the field and and the controller and the treasurer and others who uh, can absorb some of the things that the CFO previously uh, uh, spent uh, a lot of time on. And also, it will be necessary to rearrange the priorities. There are certain projects that uh, they might have wanted to do that are just going to have to be, you know, put put off another quarter or two. You, you know, you you just can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And right. I, and I it... see uh, companies that make a big mistake in that area. That they say, okay, well, I'm just going to add one more big project to my to do list, and they end up doing a superficial job on, on several things instead of one or two things really well, and and that's uh, um, a disaster. Right, and I, I totally agree in terms of the um, putting it on their plate without seeing the opportunity. Because I see an M and A as as a great opportunity, at using your words, you know, leaning on others. They can step up to the plate. It, this might be a great opportunity where a mid manager or you know someone in that <clears throat> uh, VP level that's trying to get that oomph or to get that next level, this is an opportunity for them to shine instead of just piling it on one main person. It's letting the other members, the team members, uh, prove themselves that they can handle other activities that get the result that the board wants to see as well as, you know, the CEO. Um, Now, in terms of due diligence and, and deals that do or don't go through, I mean, have you seen deals uh, in terms of before or after due dil- dil- diligence, just don't pan out. In other words, the contract just 
it falters completely. Is there a trending that you see uh, in terms of deals not going through based on due diligence? Yes. Uh, well, of course, you know one of the most important roles of um, the finance function is to kill bad deals. And so, if, if, if uh, it turns out that the thing is it does not make uh, economic sense, uh, uh, you know, it's the job of the CFO to say no, we we should not do this, and uh, and here's why. Uh, so, and there are multiple. There's a multitude of, of reasons why um, you might want to. Uh, Kill a deal. However, uh, interestingly, I have actually seen several deals that should have happened that made economic sense but uh, didn't, and uh, I thought it it might be interesting to talk about uh, some of those and, and what happened. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Why uh, don't you share a, a deal breaker or something, a triggering event that financially, you know, it made sense, but there were other elements that just killed the deal. Yes. Well, there was uh, once upon a time there was a company, a, a public company that uh, was very active in um, doing acquisitions, and um, they uh, would inevitably assign these acquisitions to uh, a high-performing subsidiary once they were completed. And this subsidiary um, did a superb job. Well, uh, one day uh, somebody came to the CEO of this subsidiary and say, uh, "Hey." Uh, um, I've done some uh, uh, investigations, and some people have approached me. Um, here's a deal that um, we ought to pursue that really makes sense, and, and these people are anxious to sell, and, and there are a lot of synergistic benefits and so on. So um, it was not a very big deal, but it was a, a very nice one that complemented what we were doing. So we went out and, and did all this uh, due diligence, and uh, came back with a serious plan that was uh, well thought out. And uh, this was a classic example of the uh, not-invented-here syndrome. The corporate staff looked at it, and, and, and basically, uh, uh, you know, they didn't want to come right down and say it, but their conclusion was, hey, we didn't think of that. We're not interested in it. You can't do it. Wow. <clears throat> kind of a culture. So, yeah. Yeah, so we didn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. There was another one uh, where the uh, let's let's call them Company A and Company B. Company A is highly leveraged. It's run by an entrepreneur who is the sole owner of the company, and he wants to acquire Company B, but uh, Company B is much bigger. So he turns to his CFO, and the CFO says, yes, that makes good sense. Uh, the combination of these two companies together would be very powerful and more profitable, and uh, uh, we know that the Company B is for sale. Uh, we've learned that through our investment banking and other sources, so let's do it. Oh, but oh, by the way, because your firm is so highly leveraged, uh, when this deal is concluded, uh, it is highly unlikely that you're going to be the majority shareholder in the combined companies. Hmm. Well, the, the CEO didn't like that idea, and he just rejected it. And so then they went ahead with it, and um, they found several investment banking firms that were very enthusiastic about pursuing this. And um, uh, the process went pretty far, and they went out and talked to uh, they found investors who would uh, be uh, very interested in uh, 
financing the deal, depending on the outcome of the due diligence, of course. And they came back and they said, uh, yes, we want to do this. We can do it. We will provide the financing. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, when we're done, though, the, these outside investors will own a controlling share of the combined companies. <laughs> a little well, bit of a switch, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. As soon as the CEO heard that, he lost all interest in the deal, and it never happened. Right, and it was right. too bad because it would have it would have consolidated the industry and, and created a, a just a very powerful company. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It would have uh, a little short sighted there. It sounds like. Well. Um, and then uh, there's another one. Uh, it was actually a series of deals. There was a, a very diversified large public company that had a number of subsidiaries, and these subsidiaries uh, were interested in um, making acquisitions to uh, grow their businesses internationally, and they did the due diligence and proposed the uh, acquisition. Some of them were pretty good. Uh, some of them were not so good. But these were all immediately killed as soon as they hit the desk of the corporate head of strategic planning because he knew that there was no long-term strategy for these subsidiaries um, in the big company. That, In fact, they were all destined to be divested themselves. So they never should have been allowed to go out and do that work because clearly the, uh, you know, the parent was, was not interested in putting more capital into their particular market niches. They want to, wanted to have less, in fact, none. Mhm. Right. Right. There was a, it was a, not a, a very strategic long-term vision for those subs. Wow. Well, Dewey, I I really want to thank you for um, sharing those stories and also participating in our radio show here at Blog Talk Radio. And I hope that our listeners will take advantage of over 40 case studies you've presented in your new book that our listeners can find on Amazon.com. And that uh, the name of the book, again, is The Executive's Guide to Financial Management, Improving Risk, Strategy, and Financial Performance. Again, thank you, Dewey, for being with us today. Well, thank you. It was a delight. I appreciate the invitation.